right. Uh, so welcome to You Talking with Greg. It is my delight uh, to uh, have Steve Quackenbush here with me today. Uh, Steve's a professor of psychology um, who has joined me on this journey more than any other individual, I think. Uh, we go back um, now more than two decades in relationship to this, meeting up on a listserv, having some initial differences of opinion, and then finding a huge amount of common ground and then uh, journeying along. With it, so we've co-authored some papers together. I think we share a very similar view of the critique of psychology, and I think we complement each other. Um, and we'll dialogue some about this and where the future might go. Steve Quackenbush, welcome so much. Uh, Thank to you, the program. Thank you very much, Greg. And yes, we do go way back. I think it was uh, 2003 that we started a conversation. We, we participated in a conversation on the Psychology Division 24 listserv, um, yes. and I recall you sharing. Um, I, I believe it was the 2003 article that introduced the tree of knowledge system. Um, and um, at the time, I was thinking a lot about the question as to what psychologists have to say. Um, and it was clear that what psychologists had to say um, didn't cohere, didn't hold together. Um, but as I've been thinking about the problem of what psychologists have to say, I've also been thinking about the question as to what people, non-psychologists, need and want. Um, and those can be two separate questions. Um, so what, what, how can academic psychology, how can research psychology, um, how can theoretical psychology speak to people's needs, um, speak to who we are? Right. So let's, uh, let's definitely get into that, but let's give the audience a little bit of history. I've talked some with Zach Stein and some of the previous others, and certainly people know my history, know my concern with the problem of psychology. Um, but one of the things I think you and I share deeply um, is this concern and share this bridge of theory and philosophy as we look at the empirical discipline and have the experience in our professional history of starting to really scratch our heads about, hey, there's a real problem of coherence here. Um, so maybe you could share a little bit about your own experience when you, uh, that some of the conclusions that you were coming to as you developed through your uh, professional lens about some of the concerns you had about how psychology was framed and what it meant in relationship to the discipline and the laity down the road or, or philosophy or any number of other um, sort of audiences in relationship to that might be on the outside of the discipline. Sure. Um, I'll go back to the 90s before we ever um, met each other on the listserv. Um, and there were two things, I think, happening in my um, intellectual development in graduate school. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, um, my background is developmental psychology. I was interested in lifespan personality development. I have always been and continue to this day to be fascinated by the work of Eric Erickson. Um, so I'm very, very uh, profoundly influenced by Erickson's vision of um, psychological health, well-being, and the like with generativity emerging as a sort of peak value. Um, my interest in Erickson... Let me, let me I'll tell sure. you just there, just a deep connection. So when I'm doing clinical work, although, you know, I am focused very much on the development of the psychosocial architecture and the idea of trust versus mistrust and the foundational implications of attachment, the idea of autonomy and doubt, uh, the idea of, you know, industry and, and, and you know, a sense of competence versus uh, concern. And then ultimately, especially in college students, the idea of 
uh, relationality, intimacy versus isolation, the idea of identity versus role confusion, unbelievably salient uh, for the emerging young adults we deal with. So I think we, uh, I just wanted to double click on that and share, yeah. we have a, we share in particular uh, that Eric Erickson's a, a brilliant contribution uh, to uh, our understanding of what it means to be human, especially across developmental psychosocial stages. And then a comment on Erickson is um, we're concerned, for example, positive psychologists are concerned with virtue um, and with um, finding ways to bring virtue into being. What I've always appreciated about Erickson's thinking is that virtue is not a collection of individually manageable variables. Um, that is, you cannot have one virtue without that virtue being affected or influenced by everything else in the mix. So for example, generativity is a care that mm -hmm. integrates everything that came before it, love, fidelity, right. Um, right. purpose, et cetera. Um, and to have love, for example, without hope mm -hmm. is something other than love as we come to understand it. So they, mm -hmm. they, they, um, there's a kind of dialectical unfolding in Ericksonian theory. Um, and each, it's a sort of spiral where each right. virtue that emerges assimilates what came before. Mm -hmm. um, and would it's not be, like, yeah, it's not like be given uh, like a thought of uh, wisdom as a meta virtue is, is perhaps wisdom then involved in trying to negotiating between the other virtues, would you say? Yeah. In fact, um, in Erickson's writings, there's a schedule of virtues associated with each stage. So mm. the virtues, if I think I have them right in, in order, would be hope for trust yes. versus mistrust, then, um, then will, purpose, competence, and then interestingly, fidelity for identity, um, which means it doesn't mean you know for certain who you are, nobody does, but that you have a faithfulness to a way of being that can be sustained over time. Um, it's not a certainty, it's a faith, a faith right. in a way of being. That's an interesting, I think, observation. Fascinating, actually that Erickson makes about identity. Um, and then love, of course, for intimacy versus isolation, care for generativity, and then integrity, which is not moral integrity, but an integration versus despair, the virtue is wisdom. Um, so wisdom does indeed pull together, um, assimilate all of the um, preceding virtues. Though I like to kind of think of wisdom as a, as an effect of a virtuous life rather than as something sought in its own right. We ought right. to be seeking to live generatively and mm -hmm. the fruits of generativity include wisdom. Right. Um, right. No, it's definitely that it has that sort of ethereal capacity of if you claim it, be skeptical, <laughs> you know, those kinds of issues. If you seek it, you know, it is a manifestation really, you know, of a conglomerate of, of a virtuous life in many ways. Um, and then at the same time, I was discovering and exploring Erickson. I was discovering um, narrative psychology, the work of Dan McAdams. And I think mm. Dan McAdams, too, has been profoundly influenced by Erickson. Um, and he has a considerable body of work. And um, there is considerable interest in the study of generativity um, to this day. Um, yep. Now, which actually brings up the other threat um, in my uh, graduate school development. And this is a thread. So if the Erickson thread gives me a sense of unity and hope for psychology, mm -hmm. this other thread 
opens up a can of worms, a set of tensions, a set of problems. Um, we can read Erickson and be inspired by Erickson, but Erickson is not a research psychologist. I mean, he, he, he presents observations, certainly, and he systematizes them in his own way. Um, but he did not prepare the Loyola Generativity Scale. Dan McAdams prepared the Loyola Generativity <laughs> Scale. Um, I'm not even sure that Erickson would understand all of the research that cites his name. Um, so this opened up, there was another thread in my graduate school development. Um, I was taking a social psychology class back, oh, probably 1990, um, a graduate seminar. And I encountered the work of Shelley Taylor. Um, and um, it was the... Uh, um, positive illusions literature. Right. And I remember at first being kind of fascinated by this, that yeah. um, there's research that suggests that unrealistic feelings of control, unrealistic optimism, um, not profoundly unrealistic, but you know, moderate illusions that are positive yeah. in nature are associated with various measures of well-being. Right. Um, and I, at first I was struck by that. That's kind of interesting. Um, and then I felt myself kind of bothered by it. Right. Um, well, wait a minute. I don't know that. And then you can find in the literature folks arguing that we ought to um, you know, help people develop better positive illusions so that they can function in this life. You know, I'm trained in cognitive therapy. <laughs> um, you know, I'm trained in cognitive therapy. <laughs> and, and, and even the narrative psychology literature integrates this element. Let's try to help people craft better narratives, um, narrative in its own right thus becomes healing, um, finding a better way to cast your story. Um, so that got me thinking of a number of things. Um, for one thing, I started to think, okay, um, what is a lay person to do with this sort of argument? Um, if we, if we encounter the Shelley Taylor positive illusion thesis, um, the lay person really is in no position to reject the thesis that there's a relationship between illusions and well-being. They don't have the background in statistics. Um, we can expect the average citizen to have a basic understanding of science, but the methodologies employed by social scientists often are well beyond the grasp, again, of even an Eric Erickson. Um, so I, as a layperson, can't look at that research and say well, it's wrong. Or I can, but I can't do it with any intellectual credibility because I'm not a trained psychologist. Mm -hmm. So what am I to do? I, I find myself off put by this idea that positive illusions are good. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded because I've read years ago, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I'm paraphrasing one of his aphorisms, um, man swings as a pendulum between truth and repose. Choose what you will, you can never have both. Right. And I'm starting to think, well, Shelley Taylor's made that choice for me, or at least I'm, I'm reading this as a kind of choice that's made for me that I ought to be able to create positive illusions so that I can be happier, more functioning, et cetera. Um, well, the layperson is entitled to ask what ought to be. Um, and if I say to myself, I really want wisdom more than I want happiness, then that same body of research suggests a different conclusion. It suggests that in order to be wise, in order to know things, you sometimes have to be willing to give up happiness. Um, so, I have the power to make that statement without knowing 
the research or the methodology or the statistics, um, yep, but yep. just simply being familiar with the finding. Right, right. Um, so <clears throat> that was one of my my, right. my I, I, I I introduced this. This is a, it's so funny our parallels. Um, I certainly the problem of value in psychotherapy is always uh, and was one of the very very central aspects. A side aspect that I introduced to my doc students. Uh, I meaning that this there were different ways in which the problem of value was central to me. But one that, you know, this was a finding and became salient up. I wrestled with it significantly. I would have said that the psychoanalytic tradition or dynamic tradition would respond to this differently than the cognitive behavioral tradition, meaning the cognitive behavioral tradition uh, would be more inclined to say, okay, yeah, let's believe in the secret and just try to get people biased. <laughs> the analytic tradition, I think, uh, would argue that, well, no, it's better to be neurotic and accurate, you know? So, I, so there's one aspect there. And I, I bring it to my doctoral students when, at, at times when, when I try to emphasize, well, what is our value? Are we valuing accuracy here or are we valuing well-being? Um, and, and it creates a, a, some tensions along those lines. So um, I really, I, I know you have thought profoundly deeply about it. I, I wanna echo that I at least uh, saw this uh, very similar, find, you know, this finding and had a similar kind of unease about it. Yeah, I, I, would, I would, if we call this the problem of value, I would speak of it in terms of two levels. One okay. is very simple, and this is something anyone can understand. No is implies an ought. Descriptive claims, even explanatory claims, that is science, cannot ground in its own right prescriptive claims. Um, so the fact that we find that positive illusions are associated with measures of well-being doesn't tell us what we ought to value. And if we imagine a kind of grand vision, um, if we can imagine a kind of, it's almost a sort of cosmic vision of the answer to every scientific question we've ever had, perhaps the TOK kind of appearing <laughs> before us, um, we would still have the question, what should I do with all this knowledge? Totally. Um, the TOK does not answer that question at all. And then, then we get a second question, a deeper uh, problem of value that goes beyond the simple is-ought dichotomy. And that's this. Even if we speak of the is, the is doesn't have to stay that way. Right. It doesn't have to remain what it is. I'll give you an example. There's a, a wonderful book by Emmons um, on gratitude, a positive psychology text, and it's called yeah. Thanks, How the Science of Happiness Can Make You Happy. Science Ooh. of, what is it? Um, the science, oh, uh, how the science of gratitude can make you happier. I may get yeah. the subtitle wrong, but the idea here is gratitude. And there's a lot of research that suggests keeping gratitude journals not only can make you happier, but it actually, it, it can promote virtue. It could make you more likely to engage in pro-social behavior. So it's not just, hey, I don't value happiness. I value other things. I value virtue. Um, here, the science of gratitude suggests that gratitude can bring into being a state where you're more pro-social. I look at that and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can understand why that's true and I appreciate right. it, but I don't like it. Yeah. I, I, I want I got to, no gratitude for that thing. Well, here's, I mean, I want to do something good because it's a good thing to do. Right. Not because, not because I'm in a state of thanks and you've done something for me. So similarly to kind of push this, um, if somebody does something, somebody affects me in a negative way, 
Um, it could be something you know years ago or something more recently. But I have I have reason to be angry, not thankful, but angry. Mm. I ought to, on an ethical point of view, transform that what could be anger into something positive, into something good. So I ought to be just as likely to engage in altruistic behavior because of what's been done wrong to me Hmm. as because of what's been done good to me. Hmm. Um, So it's nice that people have done good things for me. And I'm certainly thankful when it happens. Um, But that ought not to be the reason I engage in good behavior. But of course, it is for most of us. Again, what does that suggest about the positive psychology literature? It's a picture. It's a snapshot of a fallen, to use a religious term, a fallen humanity. Uh. It shows what most of us are like like it or not. And I don't always like it. Um, So this is the tension that empirical psychology was creating in me. At the same time, I'm developing these disinterest in Erickson and narrative psych. Ah, No, it's very deep and very profound. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll make one echo here and then you can continue because your story for me, you know, it's so rich and so powerful. Steve, you told me over the years, but I definitely want people to hear it. Here's another angle on what I would say you're encountering, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, for me, I saw a fundamental tension uh, between when the science in the social and human sciences, okay, um, then that's fundamentally different than the non-social natural sciences. And the tension gets well articulated by Tony Giddens' uh, double hermeneutic. Yes. Um, and the double hermeneutic is we can choose to say what is on the one hand, Okay, and as you said, there is definitely a separation of is and ought. But if you understand human justification, okay, uh, using my you know frame on this, then as soon as I start to justify what is, the network of implication about what can be, okay, uh, and then what I am and ought to do now becomes unbelievably tangled. So while it's absolutely case that you can't deduce oughts from is. As you start to justify what is, the implication for ought becomes very, very tangled in a particular way. And now the feedback loop, which is why I argue that our philosophy of the human social sciences has to be radically different in its claims about objectivity than our philosophy of the natural sciences. And one last little plug, this is actually in my natural science approach to psychology. This is why I want to break animal psychology off from human psychology in a particular way or why it's philosophically necessary. So this is, these are side comments to your fundamental and beautiful point. Um, And I think we agree on this. The problem of value does not simply haunt applied psychology. It does, it certainly does, but that's a little too easy to limit the problem of value to applied psychology. I'm a basic personality psychologist and I'll let the applied psychologists deal with the problem of value. The problem of value haunts basic human psychology um, to the core. And we need to come to terms with that problem of value. So I've got these two threads, the problem of value on the one hand, and this holistic vision inspired by Erickson and narrative psychology on the other. How can I bring these two threads together? How did they come together in my thinking? Well, there's an answer. I was reading one day, I was studying for prelims, and I was reading Dan McAdams. um, And he cited... um, a narrative philosopher um, named Sartre. Um, Ah. And I'm like, Sartre, isn't that the existentialist I encountered in undergraduate 
philosophy classes and hated. Um, right. And, you know, because I always considered that brand of existentialism naive, condemned to be free, et cetera, et cetera. But this didn't seem to be the same Sartre. And I anglicized French names, so Sartre will be my pronunciation. Um, and um, I was wondering, okay, so who is he citing? Um, it wasn't Sartre himself. He wasn't citing Sartre, but he was citing a book by a fellow named Stuart Charmé entitled Meaning and Myth in the Study of Lives. And I found it at the Kansas State Library um, and read it. It was one of those books where every once in a while you encounter a book that you just have to sit down and read and you can't sleep until you're done. Um, this was that book for me. And I went through it from cover to cover. Um, and then that inspired me to start studying um, Sartre's writings, yep. being in nothingness, and then some of his later thought, um, including the family. I read The Family Idiot, which is his psychobiography of Gustave Flaubert, which right. includes, amongst other things, a very rich attachment theory. So how is all that relevant? Well, first of all, Sartre looks at the human narrative, our narrative, as effectively each of our own efforts to solve the problem of value. In other words, each of us as an individual human being needs to work through this problem of value. Um, he says in Being in Nothingness, every personal project is an effort to solve the problem of being. But for him, the problem of being and the problem of value are consubstantial. Um, and so um, I study I look, I look to his literature on human freedom and I discover something much different than I encountered in an undergraduate philosophy class. Mm -hmm. um, the freedom that Eric, that, um, that Sartre speaks of gets pretty darn close to Ericksonian generativity. Mm. It's, it's a freedom that invests itself. Um, and um, I think in The Family Idiot, um, there's a wonderful quote that I, I'll, I'll, I, I think I have it right, but I may be paraphrasing part of it. Um, the quote is, if he, he's talking about the young Gustav or a young child, but he's speaking of a male. Um, if he has truly received the fullness of early parental attentions, mm. well, you got some attachment theory, yep. consecrated by the scattered smiles of the world, huh. other people developing positive relationships, yes. living will be the passion in the religious sense, he says it, that will transform self-centeredness into a gift. Wow. Experience will be felt as the free exercise of generosity. Um, and so this, this free exercise of generosity emerges out of meaningful attachment relationships um, that invest in our freedom, our parents' insofar as they're investing authentically in our freedom, don't know exactly what will be. Uh -huh. We don't know exactly what will become. Uh -huh. um, but as our narrative unfolds, it needs uh -huh. to take the form of a gift, uh -huh. a meaningful investment in the freedom of others. Uh -huh. um, and so that then started to pull together the problem of value for me, um, the problem of narrative, generativity. And so as all these threads start coming together, guess what? I got into a debate with you on a Division 24 listserv about the problem of unified psychology. And I encounter your justification hypothesis, which 
once I started to, I mean, I, at first I was, well, I'm not sure that this can pull everything. But then I started to think about that in relation to generativity, in relation to a need to create a narrative that we can take pride in that is justified, not just in my own eyes, but in the eyes of posterity. Right. I think this is a this is a very important point. So I'd like to slow it down. Certainly. Sure, sure, sure. So well, a couple of things. First off, if you're familiar, you know, with the, the whole you talk as you are talking, I hope that people would hear developmentally. We are born primates okay? and that a core aspect of our foundation of being in the world is our relational, socio-emotional, relational matrix. Okay. And the anchoring of that into either a high social influence and more importantly, high relational value ground versus a low relational value, low social influence, insecure attachment ground is radically different for the development of what would become, right? So that, that's, a, that's our psychological science says, hey, we have a primate attachment structure that's pretty foundational. And to the extent that that developmental need is met or not met has all sorts of consequences down the road. Okay, and that's part of the ground of our natural primate being. So that's an aside, but um, I wanted to loop that back around. But now let's come back to the history, okay? And this is an unbelievably important point that's cru crucially educational to me in our debate. So um, I developed the tree of knowledge system in 1997. Consilience, E.O. Wilson's Consilience comes out in 1998. And for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can, I can embrace the natural science consilient version at one level, show that Wilson is missing some key points, but also say that his overall naturalism has a coherent ground that can also be then translated into the tree of knowledge and afford us some sort of naturalistic ground of psychology that the, the vision of naturalistic scientific psychology has some validity, okay? That's what I'm making. Then I encounter you and your initial reaction is, is no, because any natural scientific psychology that is ignorant of the problem of value is incomplete, okay? Uh, and then I remember us like, and then I'm like, wait a minute, and then our evolution and really the your critique then shaped the angle upon which I saw the justification hypothesis, although it was embedded in me as a clinician, it elucidated with greater philosophical clarity exactly how the justification joint point set the stage to bridge a naturalism into an authentic human psychology. And so I very much appreciate that from you. Um, and it was very edifying. And I loved our joint evolution together in relationship to that dialogue. Um, now, here's our next problem. Um, <clears throat> we experience joint evolution. What does the rest of humanity care? They don't <laughs> yet. Um, so here, here I, 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 I'm reminded in this context of Paul Tillich's classic uh, notion of the method of correlation in theology. And his idea was, um, and I'm no Tillichian, so I, I you know, may be oversimplifying this, but the idea is that you can craft religious theological language in such a way that it addresses or can consider, be considered in correlation with human existential needs, issues, concerns. Yep. So we need to be able to speak to the contemporary person in our theology. Um, and I've always found that an intriguing, I mean, what, what, what I think about that as theology is a different matter, but I find it an intriguing idea. Um, and I'm wondering whether 
we have forgotten that sort of lesson in academic psychology. And totally have. so, totally. I mean, I'm, I've been listening and to it, your, go ahead. And in fact, let me, I have to jump on that point because actually over my course of my evolution, as you have seen, I sort of adopt an atheistic, naturalistic, you know, sort of critique of religion. I have grown completely in relationship to that. Now I'm hanging out with people. Actually, theology is the core of this thing at some level, you know, broadly defined in many regards. Anyway, we can get into that, but is a specific connection to Paul Tillich is, as you may have seen, uh, one of the features that arose in relation to the garden later is called this elephant sun god notion, okay, which ultimately is the representation that I have of the concept of God, which I put above the garden in a particular way, which I define as our ultimate concern, which I then juxtapose in relationship to either uh, an Aristotle eudaimonic endpoint, okay, or in more theological metaphorical terms, guess who? Tillich <laughs> as the old, as a guiding ultimate concern. So in relationship to uh, that type of correlational translation, I actually found my path into a Tillich kind of version of a representation of a calling of the spirit soul into an ultimate concern. So anyway, I had to mention that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, if we're gonna, if, if we imagine a unified psychology, um, and I've, I've, I spent some time, as I mentioned earlier, um, before the podcast here began, I spent some time listening to some of the previous podcasts, um, you talking with Greg, um, and um, <coughs> wonderful stuff, um, ontology, on, the distinction between ontology and ontic and ontological phenomenon, et cetera. And it's, it's wonderful for philosophers, wonderful for psychologists, but I'm not yet convinced it's going to be speaking to the average everyday person who has no background in academic philosophy, no background in cognitive neuroscience, no background in academic psychology, just a bunch of questions and issues and concerns. And yeah, you know, basic kind of, we can call it the New York Times reading audience consciousness. Okay. Yes. Of, we can actually be confirmed that they're not going to be. <laughs> so yes, yeah. yeah, brilliant question. Okay. Um, so, so the method of correlation then would suggest that what we need to do, as important as all this, all this theorizing and research and um, philosophizing and um, et cetera, is mm -hmm. how do we take the whole and package it in such a way that it could be appreciated, understood, and seen as a response to mm. the average questions, issues, needs, violations. Yeah, I, I, no, I have no idea. <laughs> if you have no. thoughts, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> well, I mean, we can we can we can we can start with with concepts like freedom, okay. need generativity, even though the, gener the term generativity is itself an academic you know, Ericksonian term, um, okay. the concept of generosity, of, mm. of being a giving person, of wanting your children's life to be better perhaps than your own was. Mm. Um, there, there are issues that people encounter, needs that people have that I think unified psychology can speak to um we can but we're going to have to do some translation at at first anyway i mean I, I don't think tillich wanted to stay on the plane of the existential concern of the ordinary person at right. some point the person becomes um attuned to the issues discussed by theologians etc um so so that's our problem how how do we take this discourse and make it meaningful 
to the average person? You know, that's a, I mean, I, I that, you know, I, I have an emotional reaction to that. Um, I, that has been, uh, I'll I, I sometimes feel like I'm behind a veil, so I would love your help on this, you know, um, uh, because I have, based on my own journey, I think I've really lost touch with the empathetic capacities of that question. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, um, you know, I ask people's kind of forgiveness. Or I fell down this <laughs> weird hole. And in the process of falling down this weird hole and climbing back out, you know, you generate all this hyper tech now. Uh, tech language systems, right? Uh, and, and indeed, not only assimilate and integrate hyper tech language, but actually generate all this new language too that no one's ever heard of, which, would be, which from the outside would never be able to make sense out of. And yet from my structure and where I am, when I talk to people individually and can find out where they are, my clinical skills allow me to empathize and, and afford that. But in the general speaking of trying to how to articulate this in a way that can be digested by a general audience, I'm, I'm deeply, um, I'm behind a veil of confusion. I find that to be very, very tricky. So I love the idea that you're thinking about this and maybe can help me out in this, in this endeavor. Um, well, it's, it's, um, there's no easy solution. Um, I'm, I'm, another thing that has always impressed me in the writing of Sartre, and I'm going to contrast it in this respect with um, Roy Baskar, whose name has come up and repeated. Yeah, previous, uh, good to have Roy. <laughs> um, I, I, I think Roy Baskar is addressing some important issues. Um, I, as I mentioned um, before our podcast began, I hope to read um, Dialectics, The Pulse of Freedom this, this summer. Um, I think I'll get a lot out of it. Um, but I've never seen more neologisms in a work of philosophy, I think. <laughs> that right, I, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm blank. Uh, you know, I'm catching him, maybe. I don't know. He is, uh, you um, know but yes, he's bad so, with that. His writing well, sucks. And he's, uh, you, 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 you cannot turn to um, Roy Baskar as a layperson and assimilate it. You're going to need assistance. Um, and I mean, that's true of many great works of philosophy. Try to read Heidegger's Being in Time without commentary if you're not well-schooled in Husserl and phenomenology. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's important philosophy is often esoteric. Um, it just, that's just the nature of the beast, much as I can't understand the science behind the vaccines um, at, beyond a kind of, layperson, New York Times reading Technological, on. you know, quantum physics. I mean, all of the, high, you know, all high level disciplines then to gain, you can learn about them, but you can't really learn them. And the people that are trying to do the cutting edge aboutness of the phenomenon have access to linguistic tools that make it very- um, So Roy Baskar, yep. technical philosopher. Sartre can write technical philosophy with the best of them, the critique of dialectical reason. Being in nothingness would be very difficult to work through without a commentary. Um, the introduction itself is virtually unpenetrable. Um, but he also wrote the Roads to Freedom trilogy, a series of novels, right. plays. Did we not see a performance? Did we see a performance of No Exit? We saw um, no exit at the Star Trek conference when we went. Yes, to, we went to the Star Trek conference Berger together, and we saw a performance of no exit. That was what. It, um, that was a great night. I enjoyed that a lot. I mean, there you have the problem of justification, among other issues, put right. on display on the stage in a way that everyone can understand. Now, before I read No Exit, I actually I, I came late to No Exit. I that was one of the. I mean, I I. I 
probably I had read several certain novels before I read No Exit. And the one that impressed me um, was published, was written around the time he was working on Being in Nothingness. So it's contemporaneous with Being in Nothingness. It's the first volume in um, the Roads to Freedom trilogy. It's called The mm-hmm. Age of Reason. Um, mm-hmm. And um, the title itself is interesting, but the plot is basically we have a of all things, a philosophy professor as the protagonist who is obsessed with freedom, freedom as you know, a philosophy and as a way of living. Um, he, right. And among the implications, he doesn't want to get married. That's a bourgeois institution. His brother got married so much the worse for him. But he does have a longstanding girlfriend um, that he has managed to get pregnant, um, which is the the plot driver that is now he's going okay. to spend most of the novel looking to get money trying to find money for her abortion which she uh, never really said she wanted um <laughs> so speaking so, of freedom <laughs> well see what you start to see and this is the point i think of the novel is mm. this quest for freedom on this philosophy professor's part is profoundly narcissistic. Um, This guy's quest for freedom is the most self-absorbed philosophy that you can imagine. And it's actually hurting other people and destroying their freedom, including the freedom of his significant other. Um, So, so it's, it's, it's the story of freedom as a disaster. Um, Now, Mm. the novel ends with him kind of gaining an awareness of this, but not much more than that, an awareness of how he has, in effect, lost his own freedom by pursuing it as an object. That is, he's sort of reified freedom. Um, He's he's not finding freedom through his relationships, ultimately what a mature Sartre would see as generosity or generativity. Um, But he's he's reifying freedom, freedom for the sake of freedom. Um, And that's the problem. But anyone reading a novel like that, you don't have to have a background in technical philosophy. You don't have to have a background in technology. It's alive. I I understood it. The narrative itself is, you know, there it presents itself. And, and I knew darn well that the freedom he's talking about about him being in nothingness is not a self-absorbed narcissistic freedom. Um, it's not meant to be or rather if, if it is this narcissistic self-absorbed freedom, it's a freedom in bad faith. And I can I can see that through the lens of the, the novel that he created right. at the same time. Um, and, and that's the I mean, I think that speaks very much to the challenge uh, that I and and uh, and the opportunity. Right. So the the opportunity is that to the extent that things can be framed in narrative and accessible concerns that present themselves in relationship to the everyday lives like, well, what is freedom and obligation to other? Right. I mean, I think virtually everyone uh, who reflects will have experienced tension in relationship to, hey, do, what, am I free from society? How do I honor my own identity? And at the same time, what are my obligations and what are the op- consequences of my freedom? And then embodying that in a story and then articulating its extremes and then realizing that there's a, obviously some form of tension uh, that needs to be resolved. And then if there's a more technical analysis of that, uh, that affords, so that's the kind of intermediate you know, um, step that's really necessary for large numbers of people then to come to digest. And of course, Sartre has the 
that capacity to uh, indeed, I, you know, speaking myself or whatever, everybody's on different paths. I tried to start writing blogs in part um, because I wanted to, uh, my capacity to speak at least in to a general audience, when I narrow it down and say, hey, here's a 1000 word essay I wanna make a point on. Um, I have found that I've been able to articulate ideas in that kind of context in ways that are, uh, make it accessible, especially when I'm in my more clinical mode of, hey, here's suffering, here's anxiety, this depression's a state of shutdown. How are we actually gonna understand that? Um, well, but and, and, and I've, I've read enough of your blogs to see that a good many of them speak to the average person um, without technical language. Right. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's, it's certainly communicating particular um, concepts and ideas um, in ways that are very accessible. Um, so well, I see you as, a, as an absolute a pedagogical master. So I'm, I'm what, what are your th emerging thoughts and visions about uh, these kinds of notions? <laughs> um, well, it's again, it's 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 a it's it's a puzzle for me. But um, what I would what I would. It's okay. What, what we have been doing when we think about, say, the tree of knowledge system is we often work from the bottom up. Um, even if we jump in at a certain point in the tree of knowledge, we still are kind of thinking about this from the uh, we've got matter, life, yep. mind, culture. And then we try to understand um, how each emerges from its successive dimension of complexity. Um, what if we spent some time just meditating, playing on a particular issue that's of concern, and it could be it could be something particular to our time, like a debate huh. about um, you know, uh, it could be you know, something that's that's salient in our political discourse today, or it could be something more general, like um, there are those issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, but but we can also I mean, there 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 also could could um, I could imagine a conversation. I can imagine a general psychology course okay. taught. Um, with something like um, the TOK as a unifying framework. Mm -hmm. But and notice, by the way, the way general psychology textbooks, we're both aware of this, the way general psychology textbooks are written. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll turn it on, on its head. Here is a typical general psychology book. Um, and anyone in the audience who's read or has taken a general psychology class knows this. You begin with an introductory chapter or two that lays out a little history, which is fine, and some research methods principles. Okay, that's fine too, I suppose. And then by chapter two or three, the first real chapter, substantive chapter, you're in the brain. Um, yeah. And you're looking, you're looking at axons and dendrites yes. and the structure and, of the neuron and, and it's the layers almost of the nervous system. It's almost as if we're hitting the students over the head with the notion psychology is a science, darn it, and don't you ever forget it. Um, and, 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 you know, look, eventually we'll talk about Freud. Eventually we'll talk about counseling. Those things interest you. I know that's why you took this class, but you have to eat your broccoli first. Um, and so we're going to make you wade through and then soon we'll get to behaviorism. You'll like that a little better because we'll be talking about rats and other other things besides dendrites and neurons and the like. Um, and then eventually we move into social psychology, et cetera. Uh, my son is in, at JMU in a psych major. Okay. 
He had to take four classes. He's a joint math and psych major. He had to take four, he took psych 101, and then he had to take three other behavioral science equivalent classes. And now in his junior year is the first time he can start taking general psych classes like abnormal and uh, personality and social. He had to wait till his junior year to actually get into those topics. How, you know, because they really wanted to hone in. To, to me, I say this is physics envy and behavioral sciences. And what they're trying to do is to say, hey, we're a behavioral science. We embark on this methodology. We objectify stuff. We measure stuff. This is what a T is. You know, this is a T test. These are your P values. And you better know that we, you know, we quantify stuff. We're not just some fluffy narrative thing. Even though, even though there, there are many practicing psychologists that do virtually nothing of the sort most of the time. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's, certainly it's important to include a chapter on physiological psychology. All right. So I, I just at a certain point got sick of the typical general psychology textbook and switched instead. This isn't the approach I'm necessarily advocating for the future, right, but right. it's been working for me. Um, I use Hunt's story of psychology, which is a basically ah. a kind of um, history of psychology. We skip the chapters that, um, ah, yes, that's the book. Um, we skip the early, you know, the ancient, it's important as the ancient Greeks are, we skip that. We start typically when I teach the course with the William James chapter, and then there's the Freud chapter. Um, and what I do, by the way, is I intersperse the chapters in the story of psychology with Keith Stanovich's How to Think Straight About Psychology. So we read William James, that chapter. We read Freud. And when I teach Freud, I try to convince everyone for it's the absolute answer to every question we've ever asked. And then, or at least I do that right, as, right. as that's not my personal view. It's no, I know, I know, I know. No, but then we switch to chapter one of how to think straight about psychology, which begins with the Freud problem. Um, and um, so now we're going to meditate on this Tension. Early version of that Stanovich book, you know what it is called? The Freud Skinner Problem. Actually, the 1992 version of that book really? is called The Freud Skinner Problem. You go back to the earlier versions. And it was the prompt for the 2003 paper I did, which where I was basically, I, was, I can now meta-theoretically solve the Freud Skinner Problem. And that was the 2003 articulation. Uh, so you might find that historically interesting. That is that is quite interesting. Um, and so um, then, by the way, in, in chapter two or three, I forget at what point, I think by chapter three, he's established operationism or operationalism. Right. Um, and and once I got to that point, I can go back to Hunt and we talk about the um, measurers. There's a chapter on intelligence testing, et cetera. Um, right. So I do a kind of his history of psychology, weaving together um, philosophical and methodological issues with the story itself. Um, but that 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 history, the historical approach is, I think, fine. Um, it's not conventional in general psychology, but it works. Yep. Um, what I'm wondering is whether it might be possible to reverse what a general psychology textbook typically does. Huh. Begin with the dessert. Um, yeah. Begin with the stuff that interests people. Talk about counseling issues, issues that emerge in counseling um, before getting to, and then spending some time with personality theory, including the humanists, the um, trait psychologists, right. psychoanalytic folks. And then as people start to enrich their understanding of these issues in psychology, we can start asking, what are the condition of possibilities 
for the kinds of phenomenon we're talking about. We move to the level of the animal mind and then behaviorism comes in. So rather than going from the bottom up, um, you know, in gen psych brain. Yep. Yep. So, yep. I mean, you can just see, you know, somebody, I mean, this is a, we're seeing a college, a flood of, you know, a college student mental health crisis. Uh, you could, you know, you totally see somebody enters the counseling center in existential uh, or, you know, dealing with problems of anxiety, yeah. of stress, of, of d- distributed attention that they can't gain in control, some long-term desires of goals that they can't seem to manage. And when they do, they're unfulfilling in some particular way. And then, you know, I, and, hey, do I have a anxiety disorder and do I need medication because there's something wrong with my nervous system? I mean, we see that. I mean, that's a dime a dozen in relation, right? You know? And then what's going on here? What is going on for this person's life? What's going on in relationship to their developmental socialization? How do we understand their personality, their development? Then we put it in sociological context. Why? Why all of a sudden is this presentation, you know, four times more common than it was when I was in undergraduate school? I mean, at least, uh, you know, at the level of these kinds of issues. Uh, that would, they think the, I think that would perk people up. They're like, I know that. <laughs> I'm interested in learning that, right? And I can imagine I mean, again, no, we we normally would do behaviorism before we would ever do personality, social psych, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, I can imagine a class where we've talked about humanism for a while and Carl Rogers, for example. um, And then at some point, a little later, we move into Watson, Skinner, Mm -hmm. behaviorism. Um, And then we could take a little time out and read the um, Skinner-Rogers debates um, to explore to help illuminate why it's critical to consider the animal mind, um, psychological formalism, I believe you call it, um, as we're also considering issues of profound significance at a cultural level or dimension. Right. Um, Totally. So, and then we would want to, I mean, if we do a little unified TOK language, then you say, hey, actually, you were simultaneously a primate and a person. And uh, those are different dimensions of your being that a human psychological picture uh, would want to elaborate and afford some degree of coherence with. Although if we listen to Rogers, uh, we get the person more side occasion, although Rogers had a very sophisticated view and certainly naturalistic in many ways. But if we listen to Skinner, um, you know, you get a different perspective uh, in a particular way. If we have behavioral investment theory and just in the matrix, well, then maybe we actually have a way to put that primate and person together. Yeah, I'm thinking to the, uh, my, my limitation is I'm a college teacher. Um, and so I'm envisioning how I can communicate with a group of college students and pull yeah. them into the world. It still leaves unanswered the question of how we reach and explore these kinds of issues um, in a way that matters to an average everyday person who um, <clears throat> wants to certainly curious, willing to approach questions of the meaning of in life, of life, um, the problem of value in good faith, um, but doesn't quite know where to begin. Yep. So here's one of the things that I've been wondering about, about this is a longstanding issue. Uh, well, there's two co- a couple of conduct. One is if you can get a good Psych 101 course, that speaks to a lot of people. There are a lot of people at that level. So in that regard, that's certainly not nothing. 
Uh, it's slightly limited in terms of the audience, but that's a lot broader than where we are. <laughs> right now, we're very limited. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but I'd like to see how this grabs you. Um, we haven't talked super much about it. I mean, you've seen the system evolve over the years, right? Um, and, and, you know, there is, I get, I find the problem of psychotherapy, which by the way, relates very similarly to this whole accuracy value issue and then these different paradigms. <laughs> then I get pulled into evolutionary psychology, tree of knowledge pops for me and then says, oh my God, the naturalistic approach to psychology can be grounded in a big picture naturalistic ontology that does justice to um, say the problem of value. That's, that's basically what I realized. Um, uh, then tried to speak to that and then tried to say, hey, if we add this structure, try to speak to all of psychology, say we can organize psychology by unify it by dividing it into three great branches, basic or formalized. Psych I usually call it psychological formalism. I don't know whether people like that or not. I did. I normally now say basic psychology, basic comparative, essentially the animal mental dimension. Okay, And then, then you have to divide out human psychology, which basically our field doesn't do at all. I mean, our field is completely ambiguous about where its primary reference point, the animal versus the human. And if you take seriously the idea that the culture person dimension of existence is a radical shift in how we behave, you might see my dog Benji wandering around here. He still has yet to pay much attention to these conversations. <laughs> you know, it's just a fundamentally different way of being in the world. Um, and we can speak to that in some ways, but anyway, this is a different, and we've already talked about some of the philosophy and then you have the profession, like, you know, what I, my day job is teaching people to be psychological doctors. So as you know, I tried to organize that um, with, you know, some degree of attention, you know, we had, we had, remember Keith Stanovich come and, and, and uh, visions of integration and, uh, you know, Paul Wachtel and Sue Savage Rumbaugh, but that doesn't get organized at all for a whole host of different reasons. Um, and then I get pulled into, well, I'll focus back on problem psychotherapy, uh, develop the unified approach, um, and started blogging to afford, say, hey, try to speak to a larger issue. That gets consolidated, and then I'm in sort of involved in integrative psychotherapy, but that's got its own sort of issues. And then I do this crazy thing of I jump over into the garden, right? Uh, and I don't know why. At the time, now I, uh, now I understand. At the time, I don't really understand why I'm called to do that, <laughs> which is, you know, you thought my dad was thinking I was out there before. When you turn your theory into a cartoon, people really start to wonder what the hell you're talking about. But the, the short of that is, is actually what happened really in retrospect is that I was really evolving into my schema from a modernist and postmodernist into a metamodernist. And I really was evolving. I was shedding the philosophical and scientific constraints of modern and postmodern discourse and evolving into a metamodern coherent picture. Really, that was actually what's happening. And ultimately, in the product of that, the tree of knowledge and the theoretical unification of psychology and the bridge into psychotherapy then grows into the garden. And it's called the garden because I fall back into the vision, at least, of a wisdom paradise. And the final part of it then is actually the final piece of the puzzle, you know, is this whole idea of this I-quad coin. Um, what is the, what, though this is a long backdrop to get to actually a point that basically says now what I am trying to see is whether or not there's a simplistic way to introduce this to people, okay? Here's the simplistic. There's an objective behavioral science epistemology worldview. We wouldn't use that term. <laughs> this is the way science sees the world, okay? There's the way you see the world embodied in your own personal concerns. And there's the way society and culture sees the world, okay? And they both, they all three of these have fundamentally different kinds of 
frames and concerns, okay? Science wants an objective description of what is. You want to learn what your life world life quest is in the local consequences. And society wants to take what is and how people live their lives and determine what's good for everybody. So you have an ethical concern, you have a phenomenological concern or life world concern, you have an objective concern. Philosophers have long said, hey, you got objective, subjective, and intersubjective. Um, if is intersubjective, subjective, objective, is there a way, you know, and certainly what I'm trying to, you know, there's tree, there's coin, there's garden, there may be, is there any particular way that the everyday person can say like, yeah, I can see my phenomenology. Yeah, I can see science. Um, yeah, I can see society. Let me, let me see if this uh, illuminates anything. We've got, I think, we've got, we've got this theory and we've got, we've got this vision that can be articulated in philosophical or scientific language. But we also have a constellation of poetic images. Um, and that includes, I mean, the tree of knowledge, imagery, the, um, the garden, um, et cetera. And, I think those kinds of images can spark imagination um, and to and, and also can elicit curiosity. What's going on with this vision? Um, and now the following is also a poetic vision I have of sorts, and I'm not so sure it's substantive. Is it just simply a way of, you know, kind of creating my own uh my own kind of cartoon um, for understanding the significance of unified theory. But when I look at whether it's big history or the tree of knowledge doesn't matter so much in this context, it could right. be big history, but I think the tree of knowledge actually goes further on this path. So let's say the tree of knowledge. I look at the tree of knowledge and I see nature as this incredibly creative force. Nice. Um, we're, we've got, we, we, we don't have things, we've got activity. And in <laughs> fact, the focus, as you've said multiple times in previous podcasts, the focus of science is behavior, but behavior is a field concept already. And um, it's activity. And so we're talking about different sorts of activity that emerge out of other kinds of activity. So here's what I see. I see matter giving birth to life. Mm. I see life bringing into being mind. I see mind bringing into being culture. And I am part of this culture and I am invited. And then this is where generativity hooks in. Mm -hmm. I am invited to participate in this generative, creative project. Um, now, I say that, but I don't at the same time wish to be Pollyannish about generativity. Um, John Katra, by the way, a theorist on generativity, um, takes care to warn us that generativity can be as destructive as it can be creative. And there are people who live, leave legacies of destruction. Um, so to say, you know, you should make an impact on the world. That that itself doesn't answer the problem of value. Um, right. It's part of the answer, but we've also got questions to deal with, questions concerning good and evil. Um, so my question then for me is what can, and this is a poetic question, more so than a substantive question. It's sort of an image. I see the tree of knowledge. What can I do to participate in growth, um, positive growth, um, rather than something more destructive? Um, so I, I'm using this to kind of show how, even independent of the science and philosophy, the imagery 
um, whether depicted in cartoon form or in any other way. Yep. No, um, that's a that's exactly right. right, right, right. And and my own journey on the natural science is, although it certainly gives rise to a dynamic birthing, is also more static and fixed. And many, as many scientific sort of grounds are about trying to say, you know, you start at sort of the habits and what are the laws that are most generalizable and it creates that. But your birthing, um, just the framing of that brought me alive in a particular way. Um, and then also too, I mean, just to see how the problem of value weaves into something like the question of generativity, I would see generativity and intellectual integrity as two sides of the same ethical coin. Um, in order to meaningfully contribute to the lives of other people, you have to know what they need. And you can't know what they need um, by not being cognizant and, and, and often what the other will, in essence, what another person needs is their own freedom. So mm. paradoxically, you have to know what they need by at the same time, not definitively knowing what they need because they got to have to decide that for themselves. But you have to be aware of the needs of your family, of the needs of your community, of the needs of your culture. Um, there's a wonderful quote, and this is another uh, paraphrase from memory. Um, from Sartre, where he says, in effect, um, that ignorance is caring simply about your own freedom. Um, that is, that is, if you're if you're preoccupied with your own freedom, you're not conscious of the needs of other people, of um, how how your actions can affect other people. Um, so. I mean, I know we've, we've talked in the past about intellectual integrity, is it? Right, it, right. So actually, this opens up a whole a couple of things. So one thing I want to circle back, I want to make a comment that I want to circle back to get your understanding of generativity, okay? Um, to clarify how it can be, like, does it have a positive flavor? Maybe not if it's, if it, you know, so I want to come back to the generativity point. You mentioned the scholar, and I want to be clear about what your understanding of it is and how do we, what are the qualifiers that ensure from your vantage point that generativity bends towards the positive as opposed to. But the other thing I want to say is at least help people or, or make a comment that I think about this freedom issue that we can find in, for example, Carl Rogers. So, so if we think about what Carl Rogers' fundamental insight was, I say that all psychotherapy begins with Carl Rogers, good psychotherapy, okay? I really think that he transforms the field of psychotherapy. Here's Carl Rogers' fundamental insight, is that through empathy, positive regard, in a particular kind of unconditional context, you, what, you, what happens, in other words, is a particular kind of mirroring and freedom that affords the organismic growth process from within to flourish, okay? So the notion that you position yourself in a particular way and attend to others and then do so in a way that grants them freedom, I actually think is very, very uh, profoundly true about the human condition. So I wanted to say that, that, although it may sound paradoxical, I think we have grounds, lots of good grounds to articulate that, especially from a ground of psychotherapeutic perspective that affords that in a way that's reasonable. So um, what I'd like to do then is with that little comment though, I'd like to come back and say, you mentioned generativity could be dangerous. Um, I'll confess when you first talk about it, I, you know, I'm thinking Erickson, I'm thinking virtue. I'm like, oh, generatively, like, because we'll, we'll be good ancestors and we'll be helping people in particular ways, you know, make an impact towards the positive. Um, can you comment about how your angle on generativity affords us more differentiation on what 
what does a dangerous generativity look like? Or Sure. Um, I can go back to Jean Catra, and he distinguishes, and you're familiar with the yep. distinction of between agency and communion. Um, yep. And he um, lays out an agentic generativity that is effectively self-absorbed. Um, that is children... My children, my work is a token of myself, who I am. Um, it is not given the, I mean, it, it's, it, it's not granted its own autonomy versus a communal generativity. Um, the, old, the old saying, parents slowly work themselves out of a job, uh, would right. be kind of reflected there. But that is gotcha. you care about the other as okay. other. Um, now, what's interesting is if you contrast that um, the um, agency communion distinction with Katra, where he clearly is valuing communal generativity as opposed to um, I want yeah, I want to see my name carried on for the sake of my name, kind of agentic generativity. McAdams, too, distinguishes age or, or um, speaks of agentic and communal generativity. But the difference is McAdams doesn't doesn't look so harshly on agenic generativity. And in fact, what you have is an ideal, I think, with McAdams, where agency and communion are synthesized. Yes. The danger of communal generativity is there's no power. Um, and it's a kind of care about the world, but I can't do anything kind of, kind of lethargy. Um, the interesting thing about generativity in its most mature form is you're empowered and you feel power, but it's synthesized with communion. Um, and um, it's it's a state where the empowerment is also epistemic. That is, you have an awareness of the world that you're responding to. Um, and now I did, by the way, find that quote that I paraphrased earlier. This is from Sartre's Truth and Existence. Ignorance is the refusal to accept responsibility for anyone but ourselves, um, which contrasts, I think, quite nicely with the um, image of Sartre we sometimes get in philosophy classes. There, There is, for Sartre, a, a responsibility, a generative responsibility that includes an obligation to be attuned to truth. And I, I mean, if we get to the discussion of postmodern and metamodern, I think we have connections there. Um, we need to return in order to be caring generative individuals to the problem of knowledge and what it means to be um, a, a good citizen in a democratic culture. Beautiful. Beautiful. Actually, I, there, I'm getting imagery that ties some of this together and then maybe we can jump off of that and see where it takes us. So here's some of the imagery. So I, I actually, when you were talking about the synthesis, McAdams view, which, which I resonate with, that there's a healthy capacity for agency and communion to find a positive uh, opponent process, so we say, whereby the strength of one is found in the strength of the other. Uh, I'm reminded of an uh, argument that Darsha Narvez makes, uh, who looks at indigenous cultures uh, and argues for the evolved nest. One of her points is, is at least, uh, is, is that one of the things that indigenous cultures tend to do uh, is eliminate what I, you know, you know, sort of narcissistic blue line elements on the matrix, this sort of, this really drive for uh, competition and cultivate a red line communion. Uh, that's the red line is on the matrix that orient towards love and then a green line freedom and find synergy in relationship to them. What would be an autonomous communal, a healthy autonomy, interdependent balance 
Um, so anyway, the idea, at least that somebody, a scholar of, our, of indigenous populations in relation, um, sees a particular sort of natural nest of, of, of community and the ways in which many, at least I would argue, hunter-gatherer societies cultivate the socialization of their young and do so perhaps in a way that sets up a structure that does this is fascinating to me. Um, and the connection then to metamodernism is, is lean Rachel Anderson, uh, who's been on the, the road out, but I thought was a very um, uh, fascinating articulation of metamodernity. It speaks some to Wilbur, but it captures, I mean, she, she's grounded in a different mentality, but she's basically saying we need a cultural sensibility um, that identifies four great cultural sensibility um, histories and traditions in humanity. One of which is the oral indigenous hunter-gatherer um, one of which is the traditional formal, when civilization comes, how do we manage laws, nations, identities? What are the theological concerns that emerge in relationship to those contexts? And what, what does that speak to our nature? What about modernity in relationship to uh, reason, science, rationality, you know, capital labor relations as long, you know, contained perhaps, and then ultimately a postmodern critique of some of those ideals uh, in their extreme, which are far less, you know, are more eminent and contextual than transcendent uh, than maybe Kant realized or whomever uh, we would put in the mo classic modernist view. So, and then the metamodern synthesis and sensibility really is to speak to imagine a 21st century cultural sensibility that includes and transcends uh, with an integrated pluralism each of these perspectives. Um let me, give, let me give you another take on dark generativity. Um, for starters, Contra does, I think, have a point that um, agency without communion um, is potentially destructive. But I personally sympathize with the um, McAdams. Um, I, at least I think this is implicit in McAdams' work. He does even have an article, um, a study looking at narcissism in generativity. Mm. Um, that um, agency and communion can be woven together. But let's go back to Eric's, um, because here we'll go full circle, because we talked about virtues as effectively not individually manageable variables. Let's imagine somebody achieves or seemingly achieves generativity. They're doing generative things. Anyone would describe them as generative. Right. They seem like they care, but there's really no love integrated in there. In other words, they care about social justice, but they can't give a dang about any particular individual in their life. Um, that is, no specific person really matters to them. Humanity does. Um, so there you'd have a really interesting problem where the virtue of care is not informed by the virtue of love. Now, let's imagine you got love and care, but you have no competence or no feeling you can do anything, or at least you seemingly have love and care. It's arguable that you really do. Um, there you've got another missing element. So that mature, healthy generativity would have to include hope transformed by will, transformed by purpose, transformed by competence, faithfulness, fidelity, and love. If those elements are missing, something is going to be off in that generative project, as generative as it may appear, and as high of a score as the person might get on the Loyola generativity scale. Well, this doesn't this fundamentally speak, and I know that you'll you'll resonate with this with a, with an empirical fragmented positive psychology, right? Uh, as opposed to appreciate 
a philosophically reflective, although maybe not in relationship to the quantifiable operational elements of particulates, but what a philosophically reflective view of generativity is supported by somebody like Erickson grants society and the kind of values we want to cultivate as opposed to, oh, do a gratitude journal. Um, I, I, that's my fear is with, with positive psychology is that it effectively becomes a virtue workout. Um, I'm going to go to the gym today and I'm going to work on my upper body. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to go running. Um, then the third day, I'm going to work on, you know, I don't know, leg strength. Um, today, I'm going to keep a gratitude journal, um, work on my gratitude. Um, but uh, virtue doesn't work that way. Um, in fact, even Lauren Lawrence Kohlberg um, spoke warningly of the, quote, bag of virtue approach, bag of virtues, plural, approach in moral education. Um, Virtue is ultimately one, but somebody won't know it's not. It's all these. Well, yes, but these all these things it is are fused Um, and to move or change one compromises another and to focus on one as if it could be toyed with is to change, like I'm gonna keep a gratitude journal because it's one thing to keep a gratitude journal and not know it's a gratitude journal, you're just keeping a journal and you're grateful for things. But to keep it because you're toying with this concept of gratitude changes the nature of the game. Um, So when I I raise critical questions about positive psychology, um, folks that are familiar with positive psychology and sympathetic say, well, and understand it, they say, well, it's not all about happiness. And I can, I know it's not all about happiness and that's what I'm worried about. (laughs) uh, I know, I know that it's preoccupied with the question of virtue. Um, so the question then has to become, how do, we, how do we deal with the problem of virtue? And if we deal with it empirically, we end up with snapshots in a photo album of a fallen humanity. And I don't wanna simply look at pictures of a fallen humanity. I want to know what we can and should be doing. Um, that's, that's my fundamental moral question. Not that the pictures they take are valid from a certain point of view. Um, but I mean, I'll give you another image. I mean, if we, if we ask a question, this may make the, the point I'm trying to make clearer, even if it's kind of a, an awkward analogy. Um, if we ask what makes the typical couch potato happy, hmm. Five hours in the evening of a binge watching TV with a pizza. Um, what should make a typical couch potato happy? Well, if they st- uh, they have that, we'd have to change what they are. That is, what makes a person who's training for a marathon happy? Watching five hours of TV in an evening and binge watching, etc. So. The, the question as to what variables are related to what variables in psychology is contingent on who we are as a culture. And if there's something flawed or wrong in our culture, our positive psychology is going to reify that, present it to us as a guide to better living, paradoxically. Um, even Abraham Maslow was aware of this problem. Um, When we wish to study self-actualization, we need to find authentically self-actualized persons. You can't take the psychosocial couch potato and develop, or you can't even take 10,000 of them in a large sample study and develop a psychology of self-actualization any more than you can develop um, a kind of way of, or a, a physiology of fitness by looking at the. 
so when you, Steve, because you've thought so deeply about these issues, when you think about both either for yourself and your own philosophy, or when you think about what message you would like uh, to give humanity or, or what you think we should, you know, do you have a philosophy of value that you feel like is coherent for you? And, or do you have a vision that you think is coherent for society that could be nurturing and move the system in a generative direction? Um, that's a good question. And I can't, I mean, I am in no position to say that I have solved the problems I'm raising. Um, I'm still thinking through these issues. Um, but, but I can tell you what I am trying to do. I can be critical of positive psychology and the bag of virtue ethics and the like, but it's, it, that's, that's easy. I mean, it's pretty easy to be, to be an, even Nietzsche was aware of this. It's easy to say no. Um, right. What we need is to find something to say yes to um, and to move our lives in a positive direction after we're done with our critique. Um, right. So what values matter to me? Intellectual honesty which I am now seeing as something intimately tied to generativity. It's not enough to just value being generative without the other things that make that what it is. Um, and so I want to be aware of, cognizant of the conditions that make meaningful living possible. So I'm interested in seeing to it that there's funding for the sort of medical research that will help, um, say, with regard to senile dementia. Um, I would I would I, I, I would love to see us in a situation where nobody had to worry about dementia in the final years of their lives, um, because I want people to have continued meaningful relationships with their parents and grandparents. Um, so so I, all sorts of values start to come into focus as I start or as I think mm. about self as a generative project. So the other thing that's kind of interesting to me about generativity is um, it's the absolute antithesis, it seems, is of depression. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if, you're, if you're authentically generative in an agenic and communal way, you're not preoccupied with yourself. One of the things that um, well, isn't, isn't, it's despair is the opposite, right? I mean, mm -hmm. is that in, in Erickson, isn't it despair? Is it generativity versus despair? Uh, generativity versus stagnation. Oh, stagnation, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, and, and that itself is an interesting image because I'll, I'll use this, this, I use, when I'm teaching um, Ericksonian theory, I use Scrooge from the Christmas Carol ah. as my image yeah. of the stagnant being. Um, but what's interesting is a stagnant pool of water it has no water flowing in, no water flowing out. And if you swim in that water, you'll get sick in it. Um, and anybody who interacted with Scrooge in his pre-generative conversion days would get sickened spiritually by being too close to the stagnant pool of water. Um, but what I recall from, I mean, there's, there's a lot to critique in Freud's Morning in Melancholia, um, his classic text on depression. But one of the things that struck me when I read that is how profoundly narcissistic the depressive state is. Not narcissistic in a grandiose sense, in, sure. the, in the positive sense that, that we usually think of narcissism, right. but a very self-absorbed sense. It is that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to simplify the problem of depression by saying that the solution is to get out and be generous. But at the same time, the state of being generative, um, involved in the world meaningfully and feeling caring and powerful totally. is antithetical to 
being yeah, in the depressive it's, state. It's 100%. And I mean, you know, right. And I, I certainly the vulnerabilities that people have and the things that will cause them to collapse into a shutdown of reciprocal narrowing of self-absorption, uh, absorption, I'm very empathetic to. <laughs> you know, well, your behavioral shutdown theory, yeah. I, I yeah. would call yeah. too. That, um. Certainly, right. That's sort of the, right, we're going to ground it in animal behavioral science, then we'll put it in the human context with self-consciousness and an affective system, and then all of a sudden watch the tunneling that so often happens. But it has this very strong self-absorption, reciprocal narrowing feature that that is uh, quasi-narcissistic as the lost object of whatever life it could be becomes so ruminatively obsessive in relationship uh, to the heart. And then it pollutes the stagnated collapse. I'm also very empathetic how easy that can happen to people. You know, people, uh, the, the dominoes are set up and we have a particular socio-ecological, biophysiological context that the vulnerable individual is very easy to get channeled into them. And, and so I think we were both, as psychologists, very empathetic in a non-blaming way. Uh, so that's, that's just basically the, the point I wanted to, you know, add for both of us to say, yeah, yeah, depression can happen and it sucks, you know, but it's a lot of it is this collapse into a reciprocal narrowing on the dark side of the heart. Yeah. Um, and, and to return to, to the question of what is it we can do to communicate with right, this? Right, right, so right. The, the, the laity, the, the mm -hmm. lay person, the New York Times reading audience, the average everyday person. Um, I think we've got to find better ways to listen. And, mm. and as academics, listen to what people are worried about, what people are concerned about. Contemporary political discourse, whatever we may think about, whatever a particular person says, they're concerned about something and their statements, however they come across, um, whether we agree with them politically or not, are expressing something about their situation in life. Totally. And we need to come to terms and understand that. One of the things I think I, I most appreciate about your blog is it goes back and forth between um, I, I, there'll be a, 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 a blog post on a particular concept or idea, but sometimes it's keying in on a particular issue that matters um, to us collectively right now. Um, so what can we do as we're thinking through these issues to be more attuned to, this goes back to the method of correlation, Tillich wanted to study the work of 20th century existentialists, for example, to become aware of, be better in tune with what mattered to people that theology could then respond to. If we, if we don't do that, if I don't, to make this very concrete, if I don't listen to my students in general psychology to get a feel for who they are as people, um, to get an awareness of where they're coming from, um, then I'm not going to really be able to teach anything that matters to them. Um, so I need to be able to translate what we're talking about into language they get. Right. Right. And there's obviously an enormous amount of angst and care and passion, uh, uh, you know, about what's going on in the world. You can certainly feel that in the tense political discourse. You can see it in, in the passionate you know, political activity that we see. Um, and so if we can grab some of that fire, steal some of that culture and, and speak to it, and then say that there's actually part of what's going, and here's what I would suggest, is certainly part of what's going on in terms of our current um, state, inside, like, you know, is that we are in a precarious moment in the world, um, uh, one in which the modern, modern industrial and sense-making system sp spread out across the globe, and now, but finds itself, you know, sort of 
in a potentially very dangerous place where I believe it sort of needs to evolve into a new sensibility, or if it doesn't, it may very well be uh, making itself increasingly vulnerable across a wide variety of different domains. And the angst, the political angst that we see in like the United States, I think speaks to that felt sense. You know? yeah. uh, and certainly I think COVID activated a lot of people in that sense. So if we, you know, if we put, uh, put my clinician, you're inspiring me, put my clinician hat on and think about what are the presenting problems that drive people <laughs> every day and then start from that point uh, to speak to those issues um, and then to begin to internalize frames that actually in the proper zone of proximal development set the stage for uh, a sense making that, that they can envision to be on a path uh, that is more generative uh, and, and embracing of the kind of values that they uh, find meaningful. Yep. So. All right, uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful romp. Thank you so much. Is there anything that, uh, that was on your mind that you wanted to, as we begin to wrap up here, is there anything that was on your mind that you would like to share in this context or have us to uh, speak about? No, I can't. I, 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 I think that these kinds of conversations um, generate for me more questions that I, I, I I, I, or at least new ways of thinking about questions I've had. Um, so I will like, you know, take a few steps back over the next few days, kind of think about our conversation and um, think about what we can do um, as a community, as the TOK community particularly, and then as academic community at large, and then as a culture to try to work through some of these Issues. What's kind of funny is uh, I never really know how to bring conversations to an end. Um, when I'm teaching a class, I don't have to, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I just I, I will end on a cliffhanger. In fact, I'll always try to find a way to leave the class kind of wondering what's going to happen right. next. And then you have to come back on Tuesday. Um, right. So until we get to the very end of the semester, I never bring anything to an end. So gotcha. I guess gotcha. we could just leave this on a cliffhanger. I'm not quite sure. Right. Well, right now it's a bunch of eggheads thinking maybe there would be some ways in which we could reframe this <laughs> to create a, a, a generative process for the laity uh, in general. So anyway, from, from my vantage point, this has been a wonderful uh, exchange and certainly it has me thinking as I've been thinking about in various ways for a long time, but always want to revisit. Uh, I think the framings that you uh, afforded me today were really enlightening, enriching, filled my soul and spirit because that's one of the missions, you know, a naturalistic ontology uh, to revitalize the soul and spirit. I feel that and I, I feel that very much was echoed through today. So thank you for bringing your rich background, deep thinking, good spirit, and all of that to today. Really much well, thank you very much, Greg. It's very nice talking to you again. All right.